Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. And I'm Charlie J. Danders. I'm a science fiction writer who pretty much obsesses all the time about science. I mean, is it really all the time? All the time. Like, In my you're sleep, never not I dream. Thinking, I dream about science. Really? You dream about Which is a great segue to today's topic, which yeah. is a show that's very much about dreaming of science and dreamy science. We're going to be talking all about Sensate, which we finally, along with a lot of other people, got around to seeing the second season of. The first and second season are available on Netflix. And it's just an incredible show. I feel like it's both underrated and underappreciated. And we really wanted to talk about it and talk about a lot of the issues that it raises about writing science fiction. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into it and to talk about utopias in general. So before we get started, just a spoiler warning, we are going to talk a little bit about the second season of Sense8. We're not going to reveal how it ends, but we are going to kind of give some hints about how things turn out. So if you haven't watched the whole thing yet, you might want to hold off. So Sense8 is a show that has a really unique concept, which is that eight individuals are psychically linked. And this means that they can visit each other and kind of be in each other's spaces, even from when they're on the other side of the planet, because they're from all over the world. But also they can borrow each other's skills and attributes and knowledge. And there's actually a great clip that we got, which where Jonas, who's kind of the mentor figure, explains how that works. You also have to learn the difference between visiting and sharing. Visiting is what we're doing now. Sharing is something you can only do inside your cluster. Accessing each other's knowledge, language, skill. What's a cluster? You have seven other selves now, but unless you hurry, there's only going to be six. I have to say, I just want to break in. I, I love this show, but I think this clip is a perfect example of everything great and terrible about this show at the same time. Because on one hand, as you said, it's an amazing concept. It kind of takes the premise of something like the show Heroes and brings it to a whole new place because it's about people actually being connected empathetically with each other. They're not mm -hmm. just connected by some like terrible thing that happened in the sky. It's like, or, you know, because they want to save the cheerleader or whatever the fuck. It's also incredibly incoherent. Think about Sense8 is that, you know, actually the comparison to Heroes is super apt because Heroes really had that global feel and really had like special people who are connected across the world. But Sensate is much more ambitious because Heroes very quickly draws all of its characters into one storyline. And, you know, by the end of the first season, definitely they're all kind of all in on saving the cheerleader. Whereas Which Sense8, was very satisfying. Like, that was part of what I loved about the first season of Heroes. And then the rest of the show, let's not even talk about it. Yeah, whereas Sensate, you know, really never, like, I just watched the finale, and that's really when it finally starts to feel cohesive and, like, they're all in one plot. But Sensate really sticks super carefully to having like all the characters have their separate storylines except a little bit like will the chicago cop and one or two other characters like blue the icelandic dj are directly involved in the main storyline about the evil terrorist organization and i guess so is nomi are they and her friends they're not a terrorist well they're, they're kind like, of quasi-governmental like, yeah like they're a weird black bag they're like a semi-government they're an ngo they're an evil ngo <laughs> You know. I love that idea. They are basically an evil NGO. Um, and in fact, they kind of masquerade as being out there to help 
people like the the homo sensoriums sensoria what the hell sensoriums yeah but yeah and it feels at times like sense eight really wants to be a sprawling soap opera with millions of threads going in all different directions but it kind of can't always manage that and you sort of wish that there had been more people in the writer's room or whatever who had soap opera experience but what the strength of that concept is that you can have these storylines where Lido is trying to get an audition Lido the Mexican actor is trying to get an audition and meanwhile we should Sun step is back for a second though and say that like one of the many things that's great about this show is that the range of characters is so diverse not just in terms of where they're from or their racial and ethnic background but also just what they're doing like they're not all standard sci-fi characters like the fact that one of them is like an actor actor Lido you know one of them is like a martial arts entrepreneurial mogul um, son the character of son um, you know we have one person who's like a biologist one person is a hacker one person is like a thug I, I don't know what he's wolf a gang is German to be. gangster he's <laughs> yeah but what I was gonna say is that the strength of this show is that you can have these storylines where everybody's kind of off doing their own thing and then all of the sensates come together and help them achieve something and cope with a problem that they're having and you know it can be like really beautiful and that's those are the often the best moments of the show but at the same time you have parts where it just feels like everybody's off doing their own thing and it kind of gets a little bit kind of noodly because there's no center to the show there's no there there there's no like central thing that they're all worried about and until like the basically the very end of season two and then the kind of finale tv movie that they made it feels as though the show kind of refuses to come together and refuses to kind of find a central concern that everybody's going to worry about. Yeah, I was thinking like one of the things that was the hardest to to take in this show was the fact that some of the characters really aren't, you know, they're just off in this other location. Like um, one character is... In Africa, he's a matatu driver in uh, Nairobi. Cafeus, yeah. Cafeus. And he's, for a lot of the first season, like, we don't understand what his connection is to any of the rest of the characters. Like, there is a great scene where Sun, who is like a total ninja, helps him win a fight. And it's a super awesome moment because it makes him kind of a hero. And then later in the second season, he finally does become a really vital part of the plot, which is a thing I loved watching because he becomes a politician, um, a reform politician who's trying to fight for people who live in the slums of Nairobi. And he is giving a big speech at the same time that Leto is giving a big speech about how he's finally come out as a gay man, which is a very difficult thing to do as a Mexican actor and um, as like a big leading man star. And they're kind of giving the speeches and we see them giving the speeches at the same time. And it's like their their empathy for each other is connecting them. And it's you get this brief moment of it's a little bit cheesy, but it's also like, wow, we're joining hands in trying to make the world better. And in one place, we're trying to do it by promoting the idea of queer identity. In another place, it's to fight for the poor. And like it really it's kind of beautiful. You know, it's it's a very I want to say it's like a Star Trek moment, but it's it's more than that because Star Trek never had, um, you know, fighting for the poor and fighting for gay people really. Not, yeah, not, I mean, not in a concerted way. Yeah, I mean, Star Trek, you know, very clearly is concerned about eliminating poverty is one of the things that the Federation has done. I should point out that actually, 
even in the United States, it's really hard for an action movie star to come out. We haven't really had any of those yet. Um, yeah, we, you and I, in fact, talked about that when we were watching the show because one of the things but, that's kind of yeah, hinted in the show is that it's rough for him because he's in Mexico. But really, any actor anywhere who's an, who's making money being a macho action star, like coming out as gay would be a big deal. It would it, be a hard thing to do. It, would be a, it might be a career killer. It has never happened in the United States, to my knowledge, and maybe someone will pipe up with an example. But the thing, yeah, the thing you said about, like, that beautiful moment, there are a lot of beautiful moments like that, especially in the second season, and the the finale is full of beautiful moments like that. And basically the underlying idea of the show about radical connection and empathy and people kind of learning to understand each other and, like, reaching across, like, all these divisions is super beautiful. And I was thinking last night about another show that's on Netflix, Altered Carbon, which plays with some of the same ambiguity that Sensei plays with of like, who is this person in this scene? Like often in Sensei, you have multiple parts of the cluster in a scene together, but only one person is present, actually physically present. And you kind of, you have this ambiguity of who's actually here physically and who's here spiritually or who's controlling who's here who's mentally body. who's because controlling whose body that's the big question in altered carbon and is... altered carbon plays with that same sense of ambiguity but from the opposite direction because in altered carbon it's all about the ego it's all about the individual who can be in one body or another body it can be i can be in your body i can be in a hamster's body i can be in whatever but it's always one individual with their ego kind of like getting to continue and getting to be a, a solo individual in whatever body you're in. And it's about, you know, your selfhood being most important in the entire universe. Yeah, it's about sticking your brain into other people's sleeves. Right. Um, and that, that is what they call bodies in altered carbon. That's a really interesting parallel. I think that what's really utopian about Sensate, and it's a really flagrantly utopian TV show, is that it is about empathy. It's about, you know, the idea that collaborative action, collective identity, um, supporting each other are really these incredibly futuristic, radical acts. And it's true that you almost never see that in views of the future or views of of kind of how humans are going to evolve. Because essentially, you know, at its core, Sensate is a little bit of an X-Men story because we know that there's these homo sensoriums that have been around, we don't know how long, maybe for a long time, maybe for a short time, but there's some kind of offshoot of homo sapiens um, or maybe they just share a common ancestor with homo sapiens. But the point is that it's it's very rare that we see a superpower which is basically the power of empathy, the power to reach out to someone and give them your strength and help them get through something. And that's, I mean, there's all these great moments in Sensate where uh, one character will like lend their badass ninja powers to someone who is just a bus driver or, you know, the thug guy, Wolfgang, will help somebody like beat the crap out of someone else. And that's great. But then there's also these moments where they support each other emotionally, like Mm -hmm. the character of Kala, who is going through like problems in her marriage. And she'll just like have this like these like girl talk moments like mm-hmm. and I don't mean girl talk like everyone's a girl but like that there are these kind of like moments where she's like I don't know what I want to do about my husband and like you know and that's actually a huge part of what's delightful about the show is that it's this kind of blend of you know heavy action and an emotional connection early on and I was watching some of the early episodes again last night and there's one part early on where you know Jonas the kind of mentor figure actually says you are no longer just you 
basically you're no longer just an individual. And, and one of the things that the show does is kind of throw in these little philosophical asides about identity and personhood. And uh, here's actually one of those. Boy said that if all the world's a stage, an identity is nothing more than a costume. That was the costume guy or possibly the director in Leto's film. And it just feels like towards the end of the second season, you get all of these moments where people kind of put in these little philosophical observations about what it means to be an individual and what it means to have an identity. And, and it should be really no surprise that we have that kind of commentary because, of course, this is the first TV show from the Wachowskis. Um, Lana Wachowski was directing a lot of these episodes. She wrote a bunch of it. And then J. Michael Straczynski was also involved from the beginning working with the Wachowskis on the story and figuring out what it would be called and how what the arc of the whole show would be. And Lily Wachowski was also heavily involved in the first season and I think dropped out in the second season. Yeah. There's several scenes in the show which are delightful recreations of like Matrix fights, but they are also recreations of a lot of that philosophical stuff that you see in later Matrix films, but what you also see in Cloud Atlas. There's actually some of the same actors from Cloud Atlas. Mm -hmm. The woman who plays Sun was in Cloud Atlas also as a ninja. She's just an all-purpose cute ninja lady. That's kind of become the Wachowskis' signature kind of narrative tone, right? Like a mix of, you know, heady philosophy, which sometimes doesn't totally work, and great action. Yeah, and even one of their all-time great movies, Speed Racer, which is like which super I close love. to my heart, oh, contains some so moments good. of real depth and real thoughtful oh, like, yeah. philosophical stuff. That is another hugely underrated oh Wachowski God. creation. And I feel like now people are starting to be like, oh, yeah, Speed Racer was actually freaking awesome. It's like this super anti-capitalist, like, really amazing you know, fable, like, wrapped in this, like, beautiful Wachowski wrapper of just, like, crazy action, but, like, candy-colored, uh, as opposed to the, the Matrix, which was, like, everything is black and gray with a few green, <laughs> like, a few, like, sort of green characters raining down on the <laughs> CRT characters raining on our characters' heads. Part of what we're seeing on a lot of, like, big TV right now is that darkness and sadness and, like, I'm trying to do my, like, Lego Batman voice. <laughs> you know, The Handmaid's Tale is one of the biggest shows on TV right now or, like, on premiere, on, like, streaming, I guess. And, and you know, Altered Carbon that we were just talking about yeah. just got renewed, and that's another super grim dark, dark. show. And, like, Sense8 is actually prim- fundamentally a super happy show, and I keep wondering what that show would have been like if they had just left out whispers and the evil organization and all of the kind of boilerplate there's an evil conspiracy stuff and just been like gone with the concept as like a happy concept but there's still tons of happiness in there and actually it's interesting because i was thinking a lot about the novel more than human by theodore sturgeon which i was just rereading for some reason and that novel had a huge influence on me when i was a kid i just i loved it so much yeah and it's a still a super great novel and much weirder than I remembered. And it's about six individuals who come together to form a homo gestalt. And it's six people who have psychic powers. Some of them are telekinetic. Some of them can teleport. There are these two twins who can teleport who are kind of creepy and kind of cute. And there's one telepathic dude. And it's kind of about how they're all outcasts because of race, because of sexuality, because of gender because of sexual repression, which is a thing that Theodore Sturgeon was really concerned about. And they find each other and they create like both a unique family, but also a new form of life that is a compound, a composite of the six of them working together. 
And it's only when they find someone who can be their conscience that they become complete because it's got that old school science fiction thing about like the abuse of power. But at the same time, it is very much about like how the future and like progress, the progress of human evolution requires us to let go of individuality and become something other. And I wonder if that was an influence on, on Sense8. I mean, and also Octavia Butler's series, um, which has which includes the book Mind of My Mind um, and a couple of others, I guess it's the Pattern Master series, is also about that same thing. And I, I suspect that she had read the Sturgeon novel because hers is also about outcasts who um, are psychic and they're brought together by uh, a person who becomes the Pattern Master. And the Pattern Master is a powerful psychic who can help all of the psychics work together kind of as one consciousness. And in many cases, the people, when they're alone, uh, are mentally ill, like they can't really function. um, And a lot of them are living on the street. And as soon as they have the pattern master uniting them, they're restored to sanity. They're able to lead happy lives. Uh, Or in this case, they're able to overthrow all the rich people in L.A. and (laughs) take over their homes, which might not be the happiest outcome for everyone, but at least for those people, (laughs) at least for the psychics. But they are also represented as the next stage in human evolution. And, you know, Werner Vinge plays with this idea, too, in a lot of his novels. Ian and Banks plays with this idea that as humans evolve as a civilization, eventually they'll kind of all merge and sublime or have some kind of singularity, which involves merging many individuals into one mind. And in fact, Ian and Banks's last novel was kind of about a person who refuses to do that. Her civilization is about to merge into a one hyper mind and have a singularity. And she's like, eh, I think I'll just stay here and play violin. Or she's playing some crazy instrument that requires her to grow extra arms. And so she just does that instead. That's the Hydrogen Sonata. It's a beautiful book. I highly recommend it. But that's kind of an anti, anti-collective consciousness thing, I think, or story. Yeah, um, But I think, like, to go back to what you were saying about the happy moments um, in Sense8, one of the things I love about the Wachowskis is, like, you can pretty much always rely on them to throw in, like, a rave scene or, a, or an orgy scene. Um, not in every movie, <laughs> but it's common. There's no orgy scene in Speed Racer for that's some true. reason. I, I don't know that's why. That's what I was thinking of. I was like, well, okay, with some exceptions. But there's a lot of orgies in Sense8, which is not to say, they're, but they're psychic. Like, so it's when all the characters are like separately having sex or jacking off or whatever. And um, and it happens a lot. And there's also dance scenes, which is which are very reminiscent of like the second Matrix movie where like Keanu like was having a little rave and stuff. And that was exciting. And these are the these are moments that are about the individual draining away and having an ecstatic experience with other people and they're so hard to do well. Mm-hmm. Like, I find myself, especially in Sensate, where, like I said, there were a lot of orgies. Like, and I'm like pro orgy. Like, I am not an anti orgy person. <laughs> and I would have these moments where I was like, oh, this is so cheesy, but it's so great, but it's so cheesy. And I feel like that's, that's just part of the fundamental difficulty of writing utopian fiction and depicting utopia, because, like, part of you is just cringing. Yeah. And, you know, actually, there were some orgy scenes in Sense8 where I was like, okay, I could have done without five minutes of that. But actually, in the finale, spoiler alert, there's an orgy scene that just made me cry like a baby because it's so beautiful. And like, it's just this vision of like, kind of just connectedness and people being together. I wanted to talk about the queerness in Sense8 and particularly the fact that it's got this unapologetically beautiful relationship between a trans woman and a cis woman. 
um, Nomi and Amanita. And part of what I think is so subversive about that is both that Also, Nomi's played by a trans woman, thank you very much. Yeah, which is super important and should be the gold standard, but for some reason still isn't. I don't know why. Um, but it's just, it's so beautiful and it's so unlike any romance I've seen on television, not just because Amanita is completely supportive of Nomi's gender and will, you know, basically smack anybody who says anything about her. But also, it's one of those rare relationships where when we see them at the start of the show, they're already an established couple. They've already been together for at least a while. and Yeah, they're living together. They've been through a lot. And there's never a storyline where it's like, are they going to break up? Are they going to stay together? They're going to stay together. They might be broken apart by circumstances, but their relationship is solid, and yet it still feels like there's a progression to their relationship. And in the end, it feels like they have gotten closer as a result of some of the stuff that's happened. And it's like, that's really hard to do. And Sense8 does it really well. Like it's much easier to show people falling in love who like meeting for the first time and then falling in love or being friends and then falling in love or being in love and having some crisis that almost breaks you up and then reaffirming your love. But having a relationship where it's just we're already in a relationship. We stay in the relationship and things we go through some hard times. And then in the end, we're even stronger in our relationship. I feel like. Well, I point out that. So the other gay relationship in the in the show is Leto, the actor and his boyfriend. And it's the same thing. They're together at the beginning of the story. They've been living together. They um, they have a lot in common. Leto's boyfriend is a playwright and a professor who teaches drama and they enjoy each other as people. They have been struggling with the fact that, you know, Leto can't be out. And in a sense, that means his boyfriend has to be closeted too. And what ends up happening is that their relationship is revealed to the media and Leto has to struggle with that. And that's his big transformation as a character is having to come out and come out in a way where he's he's been outed. He's been outed in the worst possible way, like basically with like a picture of him and his boyfriend humping um, on social media. I mean, they're not humping on social media. <laughs> they're humping alone in their house and then it's posted on social media. So their relationship also has a lot of adversity and they overcome it. And there's this beautiful moment at the end where Leto finally is like, fuck it, I'm just going to I'm just going to be gay and I'm going to be out. And he becomes the marshal of the gay pride parade in, I guess, Sao Paulo. Mm-hmm. It's in Brazil. And um, it's this huge parade. And he gives this beautiful speech where he's like, I am a gay man. And he's adorable. And his boyfriend is adorable. And he and his boyfriend, like, kiss. And then that becomes this huge YouTube sensation, which, like, ends up helping him get a job. But also all of his sensate buddies are helping him give the speech and are supporting him. And we, we see him up on stage and he's with his boyfriend, but he's also with all his cluster. And they're like, dude, we love you and stuff. And so it's great because we get two incredibly awesome queer relationships. And the other thing is, to go back to the, the issue of utopia a little bit, um, we were talking about this earlier, how everybody in the show winds up with a loving partner or mm-hmm. partners. And this is another kind of signal that we're looking at a utopian story because it's got this element of romance. And mm-hmm. it and again, this is not really a spoiler. It ends with a marriage, which is the classic, you know, that's Jane Austen. Like it ends with a marriage, you know. 
And how often do you see that in science fiction? You know, it's usually like if it ends with a happy thing, it's like it ends with a medal. I mean, we don't give the Wookiee a medal, but we give every, you know, everybody gets like <laughs> everybody gets a treat. Yeah, I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of like major science fiction things that kind of end with like a romantic consummation. I think Matt Smith's first season of Doctor Who ends with a wedding. Um, oh, yeah. You know, there's like very few and it's not it's not a common thing at all. It's usually usually the ending is that the one of the people tells the other, I have to go now. I have to go off and have adventures now. I have to leave you. I'm going to be thinking about you. It's a you. Western. That's the end of the Westerns. Classic. And I mean, of course, space operas are, and, and a lot of science fiction kind of grow out of the Western. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's it. You know, you come into town and you leave town. Yeah. And it's like, that's that's kind of the standard thing. Captain Kirk is never going to settle down. We know that Han and Leia get together and have like a little psycho kid together, but we don't really get to see their marriage Also, like, obviously, that's terrible. Like, I love that that's like, okay, if you do get married and you do have a happy marriage, like, you're going to have a psycho kid who's going to destroy democracy. So Mm -hmm. don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. And then the next time we see Han and Leia, they've broken up a long time ago. And it's kind of like awkward. And it's like we never get to see them really talk about their relationship. There's no like happy wedding where it's like, and now we live for it. We live in democracy and like it's all good. It's like, no. So even in our most kind of happy utopian stories, and I, I think of Star Trek really being kind of the main one of those, yeah, it's just it's predicated on the idea that there can't really be lasting love and lasting relationships. So let's talk a little bit more about utopias, which, you know, part of why Sense8 stands out so much is because it does feel like a utopian narrative in which people deserve to be happy and there's like a better way. One of the things about utopias is that they're super hard to write, as we've been talking about. And one of our favorite writers, Nalo Hopkinson, talked about this a while ago on the Solo Flying Show, where she was talking about her second novel, Midnight Robber, and how she realized it was utopian and that was going to be a problem. I remember, to my dismay, realizing that my second novel what I was writing was a utopia, and the dismay was a writerly one because fiction is about problems and overcoming them. Utopia kind of takes away a plot. <laughs> the, the utopian fiction I have tried to read, the, the, the older utopian fiction, mostly feels like a not very imaginative travel log of wandering around and going, see, here's just all this cool stuff we have that you don't, but no plot. So even a fantastic writer like Nalo, you know, is is flummoxed by this. You know, she she comes up against the the same questions that really we're asking about Sensei. Like, how do you have a story that is happy about nice things and like also add in the kind of conflicts that make narratives go? And you were saying earlier, like, oh, did we have to have like whispers and the whole what and the evil NGO like that just felt so tacked on. And literally, like, every time we go, like, Daryl Hannah plays a character who I literally still do not understand, like, who she was other than just, like, scary girl who shoots herself. And it's, like, she introduces the tension. And, like, I, I, it is true. I do kind of understand what her role is supposed to be. But basically, she's there to create drama. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, it, and it feels, again, it feels tacked on. I mean, partly because she's mostly seen in flashbacks. Mm-hmm. So what are the ways that we see utopias working in fiction? Like, what do you think? I mean, I really liked the thing Nalo said about how when you see a utopia in classic fiction, it's generally a travelogue. 
Like it's not a story. It's just like, and here's over here where they churn the butter and over here is like where they sleep and blah, 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 the end. Like Herland. Yeah, like Herland, like, you know, I, I guess Moore's Utopia is basically a travelogue. And like, although, and, but Moore's Utopia is also, I mean, a million smarter people than me have written about this, but it's kind of also about, it's also satirical because it's about how you can't really have utopia. Whereas Herland, I feel like, which was written by Charlotte Perkins Gilman in the early 20th century, like, I think she was pretty serious about that. She was like, yeah, if women ruled an island, like, it would look really, it would basically be Themyscira. Right. <laughs> it pretty much is, like, let's tour Themyscira. You, if you like Themyscira, check out Herland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess coming back to Theodore Sturgeon, he tried to write utopias. Like, I think... His novel, which I just read, Venus Plus X, has elements of utopia. It's like someone from the 20th century, a man from the 20th century visits a future world, which, spoiler alert, actually isn't the future, where they've eliminated gender, they've eliminated sexual jealousy, they've eliminated violence, and everybody's basically happy. But it's kind of unpleasant, partly because this 20th century man is a, a jerk, and partly because it just feels kind of sterile and boring. And that's that's kind of the failure mode is that a, a utopia often feels sterile and boring because you've eliminated the stuff that creates conflict, that makes people interesting. And really, you know, you can't entirely just like throw out human nature like Gene Roddenberry tried to do that in some of the early seasons of Next Generation. And it doesn't entirely work. Human nature is not going to radically change to the point where we no longer have conflict or jealousy or anguish. You know, the best you can hope for is more communication. And I think an interesting utopia would be one in which communication does actually happen and we kind of see people painfully working through their issues rather than just being like, oh, we got rid of all the bad feelings. It's like, no, we have the bad feelings. We're going to work through them and it's going to be freaking hard. Yeah, I wanted to mention Marge Piercy's novel, Woman on the Edge of Time, which has some of the same problems is sensate where there's like these beautiful utopian moments that will also make you kind of roll your eyes and be like oh feminist hippies of the 70s but it's it's one of my favorite books and um it's about a possible utopia where racism and sexism are being dealt with in a way that's progressive uh people are living in harmony with the environment and they still have tons of conflicts they still have romantic jealousy they still have loneliness um they still have people dying unexpectedly and a lot of the images and, and scenes from this possible utopian future are, are about people dealing with those conflicts and, and, ha- and talking about how messy it still is and yet also showing a better way that people could get out of them. Um, and I was also going to mention Ursula Le Guin's Dispossessed, which is, I think the subtitle is An Ambiguous Utopia. And she's also dealing with a kind of a feminist utopia Uh, on a moon that has very scarce resources. So uh, the government has to very carefully allocate uh, resources and labor. Uh, But of course, they're not doing it completely fairly. And some people are getting dessert and some people aren't. Literally, like that's one of the things that the main character discovers uh, is that, oh, if you're a fancy person, you get dessert and you can have, you know, an extra lunch. And so I think it is that that's the temptation and that's kind of the need when you're writing about utopias to find that like fringe where the utopia is not working or where you can find conflict somehow and and still deal with that while also showing people actually you could live better like you don't have to have capitalism to organize everything you could have another system maybe yeah and like 
one of the classic modes of utopia is the false utopia, where it's like it looks like a utopia at first, like Logan's Run or Blade of New World, like, and often the false utopia. There's a lot of sex. It's like, well, you can get laid, but when and you drugs. turn thirty, sex and drugs. When you can, when you you can get laid and high, but when you're thirty, they kill you, or you know, they're genetically engineering children to be workers or whatever. Wait, I just wanted to add one more thing when you're talking about false utopia, because I feel like we're on the cusp now of like a whole new type of false utopia, which is the social media false utopia, where all your friends are like, yeah, I love you. And then it turns out that they're all evil and they're Mm -hmm. trying to get social points and stuff. And I think there's already been a bunch of stories, including Ingrid Goes West, which is, I realize, a comedy and not sci-fi. But it, it's in that same genre of, like, it seems like utopia on Instagram, but actually it's a horrible den of awfulness and capitalist sellouts. Yeah, and actually the social media thing kind of ties in with what I was going to say, which is one of the paradigms that I feel like we use a lot to think about what would be utopia is we would have more empathy but social media has really taught me in the last like few years that empathy can be really horrible. Like that too much empathy, too much just like realizing that everybody in the world is in pain, everybody's miserable, everybody's suffering, everybody's scared. It could just be overwhelming. It can make you want to shut down. It can be exhausting. But is that is that really empathy? Because I think at a certain point, I mean, there is this like tipping point where it goes from empathy to just being like overload and paralysis. And so and I think that's part of why it is a false utopia, because it seems like it's going to be empathy. And then instead, it's just this barrage. And it's not even from real people. I love this statistic that we now have that a quarter of the uh, profiles on Facebook were fake. A quarter. That means that a quarter of the bullshit you're getting on Facebook is from not, from bots, from fake people. And so that's a false, <laughs> that's a false <laughs> utopia right there. So screw it. I'm just going back to Ashley Madison where at least they're more flirty. Yeah, like, at least right? The bots at least are the bots are like trying to get laid. <laughs> 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 yeah, we can have bot orgies, imaginary bot orgies. Um, yeah, so, so to close out our episode, we're going to have a segment called what I'm obsessed with right now. <laughs> I'm going to talk about something from the world of science, and Charlie's going to talk about something from the world of science fiction, which is kind of how it works when we're talking anyway. So now you'll get to hear us having a private conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you excited about in the world of science fiction, Charlie? I mean, I just finished reading Maria Devana Headley, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, her novel, The Mere Wife. Oh, I'm so excited is, about that novel. It's so awesome. It's basically kind of a feminist retelling of Beowulf, in which both Beowulf and Grendel are kind of sidelined. And instead, it's about Beowulf's wife and Grendel's mom. I mean, it's kind of a spoiler because at the start of the book, she's not Beowulf's wife, but it's about these two women. And, you know, instead of Grendel just being like some kind of ancient, like monstery monster, he's the son of this woman who came back from some kind of Gulf War. I think it may actually have been the, the, the Gulf War, but she comes back and she's somehow been impregnated. She's not even sure how. And she has this kid who she thinks is a monster, and so she hides away. And her old home where she used to live has been torn down and turned into a super, super upscale gated community where this other woman lives, and the other woman's son becomes obsessed with Grendel and starts playing with him, and they kind of form this deep friendship bond. And these two women have to deal with the fact that their sons, 
whom neither of the women want to be friends are becoming friends. And it kind of goes from there and it gets really dark and ugly and weird. And it's all about displacement and kind of gentrification and how we build these kind of shiny palaces, literally in this case, over the bones of people that we've replaced. And the idea of who gets to be a monster and what makes you a monster. And it's so like beautifully written and kind of haunting, but also just dark and brutal. And it's like, you know, it's the Beowulf retelling I really needed right now. What are you excited about? So I'm really excited about this article that came out recently in Science Robotics, which is itself something I'm excited about because science uh, just started this new journal about robotics. But this is an article um, by a couple of uh, researchers from Japan, um, Christian Pinaloza and Shuchi Nishio, and they are doing experiments in helping people have a third arm. And basically, they're using what I think in the media is being called a bionic arm, which is just a prosthetic that is controlled by neural inputs. So you can think about it and the arm will move and you can learn to use it. It's pretty easy to train up on it. And so what they did was they had this question, which is, all right, you know, we've got these bionic arms for people who are missing an arm or, you know, who are disabled in some way. What if we just gave people an extra arm, people who already have two arms, would they be able to use it? Well, the answer is, yeah. And (laughs) the experiments they did were great because what they did was they would sit people down in this chair that had the robotic arm kind of attached to it, and then that would attach to their neck. So they have basically it's people who have a third arm coming out of their neck. And they would learn to control the arm by thinking about it. And then they would multitask. So that's this is what the researchers were really interested in was like, could you actually use your three arms to do like different things simultaneously? So the test was you had to balance a bunch of balls with your regular arms, your bio arms, uh, balance these balls on a plate. So it's kind of like a balancing exercise. It's not that easy. And at the same time, you have to hold on to a bottle with the robotic arm. So one of the things, one one of the many delightful things um, that I love about this is that, first of all, it worked really well. They were able to, eight out of the 15 people who participated in the study were successfully able to grasp a bottle with their robot arm and also balance the balls. So more than half the people doing this, and this is just after them training for a pretty short time learning how to do it. The other thing that I love about this study is I did not realize this, but there is a technical term for a third robotic arm or an extra robotic arm, and it is a supernumerary robotic limb or SRL. Um, So fans of survival research laboratories, which is also called SRL, now have this other thing (laughs) they can be confused with, which I am sure they will be delighted to hear because I feel like SRL already uses SRLs. So the supernumerary robotic limb is something that uh, we could start seeing pretty soon, especially in factories where people are doing assembly and we might want workers to be able to do assembly with like four hands. And so you could actually have a rig with two extra arms and be putting something together that's very sophisticated very quickly. So I just love this study because it's there's no reason to do this study other than just for like sheer doc ock science fictional weirdness. Like nobody needs a third arm, really. <laughs> but we, now we know we can have one if we need it or a fourth arm. 
um, right. or however many you want. So it's a great example of science becoming science fiction. And like I said, I will not be surprised to see this used in an industrial context uh, pretty soon. Yay. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Stitcher and every place else that people listen to podcasts. And please, if you like us, please leave a review on Apple and tweet about it. We're OAC Pod on Twitter. And thanks so much to Veronica Simonetti for the production and Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks to you for listening. 